Hi, I'm Mitch Owens, the host of The AD Aesthete. America's first president, George Washington, was a renowned military tactician, revolutionary war hero, and father of the country. But Washington was also a man of surprising style, creating a house, Mount Vernon, that astounded visitors, and its research discovers how the president's house and its rooms were ablaze with color and pattern, a vibrant palette that is being reinstated, but not without controversy. Joining me today to talk about the changing face of Mount Vernon is associate curator Adam Irby. I hope you enjoy the show. I think one of the ways to enter into the com- a conversation about Mount Vernon is its sort of cultural hold on the country. It's probably the first house outside of the house that we live in as a child that we know anything about through our history classes, through George Washington, through the Revolutionary War, and the fact that probably a neighborhood restaurant has a piazza slapped on the front of it emulating Mount Vernon. Can we talk a little bit about how Mount Vernon became sort of established in the American psyche as 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 the ultimate American house? Certainly. I think that is one of the most interesting aspects about Mount Vernon as well. What's really what's really interesting to me is how much the house itself and its architecture is identified with the man and how central it is to his story. The most important acts Washington does in his life are to retire. And he retires immediately after the revolution, goes back to his home, and returns um, turns control of the government over to the civilian authorities. And by doing so, he became the American Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus is this ancient Roman general who fought and freed the Roman Republic. And after he did so, he went back to his own farm. People in the time were very much educated in the classics, and they knew that story. And Washington was identified with that. So in order for you to have for you to understand Washington, you have to understand Mount Vernon and that his act, his selfless acts of going back home after the revolution and after the presidency. So early in the in 18th century, you start getting paintings and prints depicting Mount Vernon, and it becomes an American symbol. This is before the White House even exists. Washington is on the commission that is tasked with designing the White House, and he helps to oversee the, the building of the White House, but it really is an American symbol. And when you see it in those prints in the 18th century, it's really interesting to me that you can contrast it with sort of the palaces in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very different kind of leader. This is a civilian leader coming up from um, a different class structure, not the aristocracy of England and Europe. So from the very early symbolism, you see Mount Vernon showing up on in prints, on clocks, in ceramics, and then through in the second half of the 19th century, you see it showing up in World's Fair, in the World's Fair. Everybody wants to see Mount Vernon. And then by the 20th century, you get a very abstracted Mount Vernon where any mm-hmm. house that's two stories, you can slap a piazza on it, and it is Mount Vernon. And that's very readable to anyone. There are hotels, uh, motels, uh, banks, funeral homes. Gas stations. Gas stations, <laughs> you name it. Everything. There are lots of Mount Vernons, any, any neighborhood you go to. And I know one of the – I was looking on the um, – internet not long ago, and there's a a Mount Vernon replica that was made for a colonial fair in Paris um, as as the the American pavilion was a recreation of Mount Vernon, and it was purchased and moved to a Paris suburb, and I think it's for sale now. 
Absolutely. And that's a fascinating example because what they did in that particular process is they shipped all of the materials pre fabricated over from America and they assembled it as quickly as they possibly could. And so for the 1930s, that was a symbol of what Americans could do and ingenuity mm-hmm. and the speed of American manufacture. So still using Mount Vernon as that idiom to talk about um, the great American home. Now, so now Mount Vernon is, as we know it today, the great central block and the wings. That's not how it started. It is not how it started. So the house started much smaller. It was there was initially a, a land patent that happened in the 1670s with one of Washington's ancestors. At some point, there was a very early on there was a house site there. We're not sure where that was, but George Washington's father in 1734 built a much smaller house on the property. The house had a stone foundation. It was a framed out structure, a story and a half tall, but. For that, for that date and time in that particular place, it was a really large house. It had a central passage, the principal entertaining rooms. Most people's homes at that period in 18th century Virginia were a single room with a half story or loft above. And so this was really a large piece of, uh, a large house mm-hmm. on, in a property that is, was on the edge of the wilderness at that point in the 1730s. And so what we see from that time on, there are these progressive stages of Mount Vernon becoming elaborated, expanded. I mean, it's like, it seems, it almost seems like when I read about George Washington, or at least about Mount Vernon, it seems to be a a very slow but continuous renovation. Like, he can't keep his hands off of it. It is very, very true. So, uh, David McCullough once said, uh, a quote that I use all the time, he said, Mount Vernon is the autobiography that George Washington never wrote. In every stage in George Washington's life, you can see what Washington is striving for, what Washington is trying to express, and he makes multiple renovations to his father's house over the course of his life. The first one happens in seven, when he's in his 20s, 1757 to 1759. He's looking to get married. At that point, he doesn't really know to whom he's going to get married, but by that point, his father's house needs to be expanded to be comparable to the other gentry houses in the area. So what is he looking at? I mean, uh, uh, what are the other houses that he's looking at? Is he looking at pattern books? Is he aware of what's going on in England? Is he aware of what's going on at, in other parts of Virginia? I mean, what's what's the process? Absolutely. So Washington's process for expanding the house, he, the, he had some some peers in the neighborhood who had very sophisticated houses. John Carlisle is a wealthy uh, English merchant who is located in Alexandria. He builds a grand stone house um, it, about the same time Washington decides to expand his. His nearest friends and neighbors, George William and Sally Fairfax, who are English aristocrats, they have the grandest house in the on the Potomac. And then there's George Mason who builds Gunston Hall. So he's looking at all these people's houses and he's working collaboratively with a master builder at Mount Vernon to expand the house. And has um, that master builder worked on the other houses in the area? or Going Lamphere was the, the gentleman's name, and he may or may not have worked on other, other houses but he uh, in the area, but he's certainly, the larger houses, he's certainly working on much smaller houses. Mm-hmm. But Going Lamp, the, the master builder is familiar with these these local idioms, but he's also familiar with the pattern, pattern books that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things about Mount Vernon is that there are two instances where Washington directly uses these these English pattern books 
to import architectural style, what is very fashionable in England. Washington never travels to England, but he travels all around the eastern seaboard and learns from everything he sees. Um, and that's one thing that you see over the course of Washington's life is he continues to learn and expand and change the house based on what he learns as he travels up and down the eastern seaboard. But he's working as his own architect, it, more or less. It's, it's a little bit complicated because the, the sense of an architect as we think of it today really didn't exist mm. uh, in the 18th century. A lot of it is sort of vernacular building tradition that existed in Virginia, and that's what that local builder knows. So, But Washington did also act as he would, he'd made drawings. We have a couple of them in the collection. So he did collaborate with these builders to create what he was mm. looking for. So you said that was the first. So you mentioned the the house being redone when he's in his 20s, mm-hmm. anticipating marriage, but not knowing when that's going to happen yet. Exactly. Does that mean that the, the was it more a modernization of the house or how much more larger did it need to be since it was already seemingly a family house? It, it was already a decently sized house, um, but... By that point, by the time Washington decides to expand, there are these other much larger mm-hmm. houses in the neighborhood, and Washington wants to compete on that level. And so that's what Washington does. He expands it and takes it to a two full mm-hmm. stories and elaborates the interiors with using these English pattern books. And that's a way of really sort of um, cueing into expressing the, the type of gentry that Washington mm-hmm. believed he was and uh, wanted to express. What, what was his style then, as opposed to his style later on in life, say in his 20s? So Washington's style was interesting. Um, and and to, to talk about Washington's style, Washington always had a very keen sense of style, but he always watched what other people were doing. He very much was aware of what his neighbors were doing. Washington was never exactly the... On the, on the cusp of fashion. Somebody near him was, and Washington would soon um, make very similar decisions and use those, mm. use those objects. Um, so Washington, his sense of style early on was very much English-inspired. Washington, at this point, is buying all of his goods from England. Um, he basically... Which he, is the most fashionable... Fashionable place If you want to keep be. up exactly. with your neighbors, you're buying English... Fabrics, you're buying English furniture, you're buying English porcelains. London made is ever the best, as they said in the 18th century. So George Washington um, would send his tobacco over to London. He had an agent who sold the tobacco for him there and then would go out and purchase goods for Washington and send them back. Mm. That had a that had um, an interesting effect of Washington could also run up a debt. Um, and, <laughs> and he very much did. So Washington would order goods Lots of furniture comes over from England. He's buying it in London, which is the center of this global empire. And people really understood London-made furniture at that point as the very best. And Washington was buying it at the time. Now, with his, I, I suppose, a representative in mm-hmm. London, a, a buying agent, is he sort of sending over a shopping list saying, I need a bureau cabinet this tall to fit between these doors? Or is it just more, I need a bureau cabinet because I have to write so you choose whatever one you think is the best? Exactly. So there, there's a change that occurs there. Early on, Washington's writing, and he says, I need enough wallpaper to furnish six rooms. 
He doesn't give color. He doesn't give style. He says that one one wallpaper needs to be appropriate for a dining room, and that's all all he gives. There's a change. All of the letters come from George Washington and go to go to London. There's a change when George Washington gets married to Martha Dandridge mm-hmm. Custis. When he gets married to her, he um, she moves to Mount Vernon and he writes very detailed lists of exactly what home furnishings he wants. And you can see her voice in that explaining exactly what was needed. The first thing they buy is a bed. They want this bed to be a very particular height in very particular dimensions with a cornice that's exactly of a certain type. The, the fabric is to be blue and white. And he sends a piece of the wallpaper that he purchased and he said, mm-hmm. it needs to match this. And so that's really where Martha comes into the story. We all always call Mount Vernon George Mar- Washington's Mount Vernon, but it's really George and Martha Washington's Mount Vernon. They're both in this together and you see their uh, the, see their style all through, it, through the house. I'm really intrigued by his pre-marriage moment of just sending over a list saying, I need enough wallpaper to cover X. Absolutely. And just leaving it up to the 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 agent in London to say, well, we'll get red or maybe we'll get blue or and you're, or being stuck with what you you get. I mean, you have to, you're, you're not going to order more to replace it. You just have to use it, I suppose. That's exactly right. And Washington often complains because he believes he's being sent inferior goods from England, and they're at a much higher price. He gets a bottle case that we still have at Mount Vernon today that is to hold um, various alcoholic spirits. Mm -hmm. And it has something like 12 bottles, 12 glass bottles. It's a mahogany case, and he paid 17 pounds for it. And he writes back to England this very sort of angry letter and says, I could have gotten something far better and far cheaper in this country if if I had been allowed to do it on my own. But I, 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 I like, you know, George Washington, father of the nation, George Washington, first shopper. Um, I, I, I love the idea of, of him, this bachelor out in the middle of nowhere and trying to make a fancy house that's going to attract, a, hopefully, a, 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 a young bride. Um, Absolutely. But also keep up with his neighbors. Absolutely. What, are the, what is... The, what are the neighbors' um, opinions of what he's doing? Do you have any idea of, are the Fairfaxes liking the fact that he's using them as a model of greatness? Or is there an idea of, the, of anybody snickering? Well, they the Fairfaxes are, and I've actually been working on the Fairfaxes for the, about the past six years, mm-hmm. very interested in their house, which is called Belvoir. It was right next door. The Fairfaxes, the elder Colonel William Fairfax really took George Washington under his wing and gave him, um, set him up with a career as a surveyor and really was responsible for pushing Washington um, ever higher in in the local aristocracy. And I think they saw their relationship as very sort of familial. These Mm -hmm. were his best friends. So they weren't really snickering at him, but Washington does emulate them. And we have a really, really great understanding of that based on some new documentary research we've been doing. Um, about six years ago, this document showed up uh, at auction, and it is a, an account book kept by the Fairfax family. The account book lists everything they bought in London between 1763 and when they moved to England in 1774, mm-hmm. including a tremendous amount of furniture. So when the, when the Fairfaxes moved to England in 1774, they bought all of this wonderful London-made furniture. It's the only time we know a London upholsterer or interior designer of the time completely outfitted an American home. And he, they go back to England, 
And what does Washington do? Washington presides over their estate sale just as the American Revolution is getting ready to break out. He and he presides over the sale and buys about half of the furniture that's there and brings it back to Mount Vernon. He doesn't have access to his London goods um, that he typically ha- has available to him, so he's able to sort of get around that uh, that aspect. But also, these are goods that have been the Fairfaxes were at the height of fashion. Mm-hmm. They were the most fashionable in Virginia, and they've been tried and tested and approved by all the local gentry. So Washington knew he was doing something, and it was absolutely yeah, they come correct. With the, they come with the provenance. They come with and the provenance. everyone's going to be impressed by that. Do you think, thinking of, of Washington at the auction, instead of trying to sell the pieces to as many people as he could for the most money that the Fairfaxes could get, do you have this idea of Washington at the auction saying, I really, really need furniture, and this is, I'll jump in and bid before you do? Well, we know Washington was always an honorable man. And so <laughs> I am certain at this point that he got that he got the best he, value he could Good. for the for the Fairfaxes. But so now the 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 list of the furniture mm-hmm. is it detailed in terms of colors and materials, et cetera, um, that would help push forward your uh, restoration projects at the house? It certainly is. One of the most fascinating pieces of the of the Fairfax puzzle is after the sale is over, um, a suite of furniture in the house didn't sell. And it was the furniture in the blue dressing room is the way it was described. And George William Fairfax writes and gives Washington that furniture. Mm-hmm. And he gets it just as the revolution is breaking out. He's in Boston presiding over um, the the Continental Army. And we find out later, after the war, that he had moved the furniture to Mount Vernon. But we had no idea what the furniture in the blue dressing room was until this document showed up. The document shows up, and it's a very detailed listing of what the furniture was in that room, mm-hmm. down to the exact color of the furniture. It was Saxon blue, which was a brand-new color made from sulfuric acid and indigo at the time. And back stools, which are chairs that are upholstered on the back and on the seat very luxurious use of textiles and then one of the first sofas that exists in Virginia we used that documentary evidence um, because because none of the original furniture survived we went to England and looked at original examples of furniture that you could match up very similar to Mm -hmm. what was in this document and we reproduced that furniture over the course of the past three years so what we have is a best the best recreation we can possibly find um, of that of that furniture, and we use that to furnish Washington's front parlor, which was one of the most elaborate spaces mm-hmm. in the house. It's really interesting to me that Mount Vernon is possibly, probably the most studied house in America, uh, it in the White House. But still, today in 2020, there is still a lot to find out about the Washingtons, and a lot of it happens chant by chance. This this document basically fell out of the clear blue sky mm-hmm. one day and we had it and it completely transformed what we knew about the house i call it the rosetta stone of mount vernon furnishings now a lot of what's gone on at mount vernon over any number of years is this brightening saturating mm-hmm. palette which i'm sorry to say the last time i went to mount vernon i was probably in elementary school <laughs> and it was Pastel. as i recall a white house um, a very white house with very pastel rooms. Obviously, what's happened now with not only, uh, I think, a greater appreciation for 
historic palettes and curators not being afraid of, wow, that's an intense green, that Mount Vernon is now in a, a forefront of documentary research in terms of finishes, in terms of period color combinations, even period color clashes. Absolutely. So now it seems when I see the photographs, your, your, your eyes get as wide as they can be wondering, like recently you've just done the new room, correct? The new room, yes. Can you tell us about the new room? So the new room is the last room Washington added to the house. He starts adding it in 1774. He, by that point, he heads off and he's um, in Boston at the Siege of Boston and it's eight years before he really makes it back. He's writing back from the front saying, put a roof on, on the structure. It was, the room is absolutely enormous in scale for 18th century America. The only other places you would have seen rooms so big were in churches and courthouses and the governor's palace. And the new room was, the use of it was to be? The use of it is somewhat ambiguous and there's a little bit of debate over what, what it actually um, was for. My impression of, the, of it is that it was always intended as a dining room, but I, uh, colleagues believe it was intended as an English saloon for mm-hmm. viewing art. So there is a little debate. We certainly know that dining took place because there are sideboards that are um, always in that room. But it's really a grand, large entertaining space. Dances could have taken place in there. In the 18th century, rooms change function all Mm -hmm. the time. But it really was a showstopper um, and a statement, really, that Washington had arrived in the gentry class. He builds this space really starting in 1774. He only does the interior finishing in the 1780s Mm -hmm. um, when this sort of Adamesque neoclassicism is becoming is brand new in America, and he incorporates all of that, including Cincinnatus motifs. So there are farming motifs in the plaster work and on the uh, on the on the mantle. And then in the 1790s, George Washington um, comes back and from the presidency in 1797, and that's when he brings all the furniture from the room from Philadelphia and all the artwork for the room. So really, it tells Washington's life story over three decades. So he's away in Philadelphia. He's also uh, commanding troops. He's got a lot of other things on his mind, but at the same time, he's still working on Mount Vernon long distance. I mean, it doesn't, does work just completely stop? No, it doesn't. And it's really, it's wonderful for us um, as curators. It was difficult for him to be away from home, but it's wonderful for us because he writes back home and explains exactly what's he, what he wants done. And then his farm manager's over time write back to him and explain what has been done. So we have this wonderful back and forth in correspondence that if if he had been there, he would have just spoken to the to the people who were doing the work. Mm-hmm. And so we use those documents and mine those documents to figure out what, what actually um, Washington did and how, how the house changed through time. So what is Martha's role in all of this? Is she, he seems to be taking the lead in architecture, decoration, furniture, but surely she had opinions that were being expressed as well. Certainly, she has opinions that are being expressed in the house, and that's where it gets really difficult to say because I I spoke at the beginning about that sort of transition that Washington George makes from from the basically writing to, to London and saying, just send me some wallpaper to very specific orders. All of his orders from the time he's married are very specific. Okay. So when I say George Washington, I really mean George and Martha Washington because she is behind many of those decisions. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it gets difficult to parse out exactly what she did and what he did. And so the new room, yes, that would have been obviously a, a, a joint. 
Absolutely. interior. And Absolutely. that's a really bright colored room. I remember being startled years ago when that malachite green yes. room was was painted. And I remember people just in an uproar yes. over, over that. Because I remember that was... What is the name of that room again? It's the small dining room. The small dining room. It is an unrelieved malachite green. It it's is. The, it's wall-to-wall paneling. Everything is painted this color. It's absolutely incredible. Now you've incredible. got the new room. Yes. And the new room is just as bright, but it's it's broken up with other colors and white and... Um, Absolutely. It's th- there are two different oxidations of copper in scientifically that make those two colors. Mm. The one in the new room is ca- called Vertiture, and it was a very popular pigment in eight- in the 18th century, particularly in England. Um, and it's sort of this vibrant bluey green color. Um, Washington buys it as field paper, so it's just plain and has it applied to the walls. And there's a narrow little French border that goes all mm-hmm. the way around it. That's the color color scheme he chose, and we actually have found fragments of that wallpaper on the plaster around windows where where they've been covered up over the years. And it's a bright, vibrant color. In this past renovation, the color this that happened about 2013, 2014, the color cha- stayed on the field paper stayed virtually the same, but we were able to figure out more detail about the woodwork in the room. Now, now field paper, just for people who are listening yes. and don't understand it, it's a, it's a solid colored painted paper. The solid colored green painted paper. Okay. Yes. And then the rest of the woodwork is, is painted. Um, a lot of it is in buff, what Washington called buff inclining to white, but the, the plaster or, um, the composition ornament ornament that goes around and sort of gives detail around the space that is picked out in lime wash. So it's a it's a slightly different color. We have the buff and we have the bright bright white, mm-hmm. and so you get this variation in the room. And it's a very richly textured space as well. Um, and so that is something we've been we've we've worked on for the past few years. We've got that that space we was first redone in about 1980 and when paint research was really in its infancy and then we redid it in 2013 2014 with this all of this new data in mind and for people listening the 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 coverage of all these projects at mount vernon are richly explored on the website i mean one which is i think one of the most exciting historic site websites i've ever seen i mean you're everything is is it's this great sort of chase looking for paint fragments and looking for wallpaper bits and 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 seeing it all come together again through videos and documentary really thorough photography it's it's quite amazing to see how much of what you're doing you're putting out there like throwing everything on the table and showing how it's done absolutely and that wasn't always the process it used to be that the room would shut down and um and then it would open back up and it would be a completely different interpretation. But we really want to educate people all along the way and show them what we're doing and what the reasons are behind them. Everything we do, we have a historical basis for, but a lot we don't know absolutely everything about these spaces. And some of what we have to do is a little bit of a historical guesswork. We want everybody to understand when we're doing that and when we have exact documentation and why we're making the decisions we're making. And people really just like it. Mm-hmm. When we had the new room, it was really impossible to shut the new room down, and that really spurred this process. So we had it open with scaffolding through the room, and people could ask the craftsmen questions mm. as they were going through the space, and that was one of the most engaging processes we, we ever had. We actually did a blog that went along with it, and we would do new entries every week. Right. 
I followed so. them. I followed everyone. <laughs> what I find also interesting too is all householders make mistakes. Everybody has something that they didn't quite expect was going to happen. And I knew you had mentioned to me not too long ago about valances. Could you explain a bit about Washington and the case of the new room valances? That was a very fun project. So we were looking for the original, where the, where the curtain hardware was on these windows. So we did all sorts of scientific analysis to find if there were nails or pencils or something around these these windows because they're all they're all pretty much original and we couldn't find anything on the windows. So that really meant cornice board or pelmet um, as they are often called today. When I first got to Mount Vernon, there was a pair of cornice boards. They were on the third floor of the mansion in storage. And I went and looked at them and they had very similar composition ornament uh, swags to what was in the new room. We pulled those down, uh, took them, and did some scientific analysis on them and found that there were 11 or 12 layers of paint on these things. Mm-hmm. We x-rayed them and found that there were 18th century wrought nails uh, holding these things together. And so my initial hypothesis was that they went on the north and south windows, the smaller windows, um, not the large Palladian or Venetian window. But the problem was they were too small. And so in doing documentary research, I found a document where Washington writes to his farm manager and says, please take measurements of absolutely everything in the house uh, and send them to me. And the farm manager wrote back and said that the, that the windows in the new room were three feet, six inches from out to out. Turned out they weren't. They were actually three feet eight and uh, three feet eight and a half inches. So these cornice cornice boards were exactly the size that Washington's farm manager uh, had specified, and they remain with the house to this day. So we can only presume that the Washingtons used them and made it work. Mm-hmm. They couldn't send them back to. They could have sent them back to Philadelphia, but I think they just decided to use them and kept them. And, right. But we can actually show that little mistake uh, in the house, which there are very few houses that have that amount of documentary evidence. What I find really interesting uh, is, you know, in the time of, say, like the colonial revival period of Mount Vernon and the Mount Vernon that I knew as a a child, the the pastelness of the uh, incorrectly examined uh, version of of historical uh, colors, do you see the people appreciating who come to the house appreciating the really bright palette that there is now? I mean, are they still really startled or are they really um, appreciative of, of knowing that this is what it really felt like? People are really startled, but they're also fascinated by it mm. because we explain why we did, why, why it was done. They will, people in, invariably bring their own taste into this and we, mm. we can't exactly put ourselves in the minds always of the people of, in the 18th century, but we, we interpret their tastes as best we can. And so people, um, people will comment, I like this room and I like this color and I don't like this room in that color. Um, so I think it's a very personal interaction that people have with the house. Or I liked that room better when I was eight. Exactly, <laughs> there are certainly those. I liked it better when before. But, and so it does engender strong opinions on either side, but one one of the great things about Mount Vernon is throughout its history, from its founding in 1860, um, from the purchase in 1860 to today, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association has done their its best to to use the best documentary research we've mm-hmm. had to furnish it as accurately as we could, um, and that and we understand that that's a continually evolving process. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the most 
exciting aspects of the restoration work that's ongoing at Mount Vernon that seems to be a continuous job, so you seem to be safe in your position because there's so much work to do, is the exterior. It has changed so much. The yes. color of the, the, the color, the texture, everything. It looks like I said when I was a kid, it was bright white. Absolutely. And now it is... Now it's sort of a softer, creamy, sort of off-white color. And what the way we figured that out, and my, I have to give all the credit to my art architecture colleagues, they, Dennis Pogue and later Tom Reinhardt, have really worked on this. Um, Washington in the 18th century had wanted the house to look like stone. So he did what was called rusticating the house, which the wood, wood everything is wood paneled uh, or wood clabbered that's chamfered or cut out to look like square blocks of stone. Mm -hmm. Well, after the, the wood is sealed off, it's painted, and then while the paint is still wet, sand is thrown on it. And the interesting things are the, is, are the choice of the paint color and the choice of the sand. Throughout the 20th century, we've used modern bleach white sand, which is what you basically go to Lowe's and Home Depot and get. Mm -hmm. And the mansion was bright, bright white. Um, but in doing documentary research and in finding little little scraps of Washington's original um, paint scheme that, that survived, we found that it was not that color. Um, Washington actually used a much creamier white, and he used a quiet sandstone that was brought that his enslaved workforce brought up from the quarries about ten miles south in Aquia, beat down into sand and used in a very pure form and threw it on the mansion, and that's how you got that that. Uh, wonderful color that we see today. And the Aquia stone, that's the same stone that was used for the White House, yes? It is the same stone that was used for the White House. It's very porous, and it tends to disintegrate over time, mm -hmm. but it is it is the same stone. So what other projects are you working on now uh, and on the interior? Is, yes. What, what, what's the next room that we so, can look forward to? So the next two rooms we're working on are the Central Passage, which is the main uh, sort of throughway in the house. It's where the staircase is. We've already repainted the space. Uh, it was in the 1980s painted uh, with a – it was faux-grained. They thought in 1980 that that was the Washington-era paint paint scheme. We've later found that it was not. It was actually a cream color, and there was wallpaper that went along with it. Mm -hmm. So we're working on with Adelphi Papers in Sharon Springs, New York, to recreate a wallpaper that's very similar to little fragment that we found of Washington's wallpaper. So the Central Passage will be done later this year. What is the wallpaper like? Is, is, is it a pattern? Is it, it is a pattern. It is an arabesque pattern, which looks like ancient Roman wall paintings that sort of are bouquets of flowers and and classical women and masks and, and things all arranged in rows mm -hmm. on, on the wall. It's a very beautiful pattern. And when would Washington have, have installed that? Exactly. So Washington installed that in probably installed that in 1797 when he came back from the presidency. One of the challenging things at Mount Vernon is we, we have, uh, our mandate is to represent Mount Vernon as it existed in 1799, the last year of mm. George Washington's life. And so when you get, when you do the paint analysis, you get basically a layer cake of every layer of paint, what the Washingtons painted it and many other generations painted it. Mm. And so, so you that's part of the original house. Exactly. Okay. And so you have to identify which layer of paint Washington made it to by the end of his life. Typically, it's the fourth layer of paint, and he repaints every 10 years, re-wallpapers every 10 years, and we see consistent invoices for that. Mm -hmm. But um, that is that is a challenge to figure out exactly the right period to represent in the mansion. So right now, 
that sounds like it's going to be a really startling change. It, that wallpaper. It will be very startling. There has not been wall. There was actually interestingly, they first found fragments of this wallpaper in the late 19th century, and the resident superintendent or director at the time, uh, a man named Harrison Dodge, he sent that wallpaper, those these fragments that we still have today, to the Pratt Institute and had the wallpaper recreated. Um, it doesn't look anything like what we actually think it, it did, mm-hmm. but it was one of the early efforts at recreating wallpaper in America. So we're back at that process, but it will be definitely startling, definitely much more vibrant mm-hmm. than it has been in the past. That, that space has been very dark, and now it's very much brightened up, and the wallpaper will really be an excellent addition. Okay, so that's one, one big project. project. Next big project is the yellow bed chamber. And that's the room that on the second floor that people walk through uh, to get to the Washington's private suite. The yellow bedchamber was the Washington's best bedchamber. It was reserved for their best guests. It had a bed that was even better than their own. So we're working on wallpaper for that space, again, with Adelphi Papers. We're working on the bed for that space. The bed has actually, the bedstead has been recreated, and the fabric hangings are being completed as we speak. And so that that space will be a much much different and much more vibrant space. It had the most expensive textiles on the bed. Beds were some of the most expensive things you could buy in the 18th century because they used so much so many textiles. And the textiles on this particular bed were silk and worsted wool damask, which was the finest that they had in the house. Mm-hmm. M- many of the other beds were cotton materials and cotton or linen or something or wool, but this was silk and worsted wool in a in a very um, interesting damask pattern. Mm-hmm. So we're recreating that bed, um, and that's also going to be a starling change. Most of the we're looking to get all of the bed chambers on the second floor redone by um, by 2026. Um, the final, the the final bedchamber will be the Washington's own bedchamber, uh, which it will also have a, a very vibrant wallpaper. It is a very staid looking room right now, mm-hmm. but it is we have fragments of an original wallpaper that we think are period to the Washingtons. Now, were, were the fa- fragments that were found in that room in this space? Or in that space, and they've been they've been found over the years and looked at and interpreted over the years wallpaper scholarship and all scholarship has advanced over the years mm. and now we're looking at this with many generations of uh, of scholarship behind us and finding that that wallpaper probably is the original wallpaper and so we're looking to we'll be looking to recreate that as well that's a big sweep of rooms it is a big to be sweep working of rooms. on yes thank you very much for coming in today and talking about Mount Vernon and all of the many projects there i appreciate it thank you for having me The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.